Today we're reading from Matthew 11, uh, verses 20 to 30. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It was interesting to hear the parallels between how Jamie's son kind of felt tentative and Janice's grandchildren. Um, we're all, I suspect, uh, feeling a little bit awkward. Uh, our social skills and experiences have been curtailed and you kind of get tired quickly. And today's scripture really speaks to that. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. What an invite. Beautiful, isn't it? Are you feeling weary and burdened? Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you rest. In fact, he's saying this, first of all, to first century Jews. And if ever there was a people who were weary and burdened, it was the first century Jews. They'd had something like six or seven hundred of the last years in slavery, under oppression or in exile, or if you're from the north, it's seven of the last 800-odd years. Uh, they're heavily taxed, they're oppressed, something like 20 to 25% of them are enslaved, 90-plus uh, percent of them are kind of living on the subsistence line, um, they're bordering on poverty. Life is tough. Uh, it doesn't feel like God's glory has returned to the temple. There's a Roman eagle over the gate to one of the entrances of the temple. They are incredibly weary and heavy laden. And if anybody needed rest, it was them. And when Jesus says, I offer you rest, what does a first century Jew hear? They hear that God made the world in six days and then he rested. They hear that Adam, like God, gets to rest. 
He gets to feel comfortable being in God's place under God's rule and he's safe and the world is ordered. They hear echoes of 2 Samuel 7 where when there's a good king on the throne, Israel has rest from all its enemies. And Jesus is saying, come to me. I'm going to give you that type of rest. If ever there was a people who were hanging out for rest, it was the first century Jews. If ever there was a person who could deliver rest, it was Jesus. What have we seen in his year of inauguration? He's healing people. The blind can see. The lame can walk. He speaks to the waves and the waters are calmed. He casts out demons and even the demons acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. He brings new covenant blessing like red wine that overflows. A people need rest. A man who can deliver rest. A match made in heaven. And how do most people respond to Jesus? They don't believe him. They don't trust him. They don't follow him. It just doesn't make sense, does it? Um, so we're in Matthew's gospel and the theme of Matthew's gospel is that Jesus has um, come. Is he this long-awaited promised Messiah from the Old Testament? That's kind of a question that drives Matthew's gospel. And this particular passage, it's not at the end of the year of inauguration. It's actually at the end of the year of popularity. That's the next year. We'll look at that sometime in the future at DAC. But in short, Jesus runs around the north. You can see there on the map, the north of Israel. He goes and visits all of those places. And he preaches and he heals and he draws crowds. People come out in their thousands to listen to Jesus and to have the sick healed. And um, he feeds them and he cares for them. And, and he's a really popular guy, hence the name, the year of popularity. And at the end of the year, Jesus sends out the disciples on mission. Remember, he said, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And we have in that, uh, in that little story, that calling of the disciples, the sense that when the disciples go out in their own strength and fish, they get nothing all night. But when Jesus says, hey, go out and fish, they pull in a massive harvest. And Jesus has just said himself in, um, in Matthew 10, Matthew 9, sorry, the harvest is plentiful. And so we're expecting that after this year of popularity, the disciples are going to go out and pull in the nets and see how many disciples are now following Jesus. And what do we get? We get disbelief. And now Jesus curses these northern cities. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. You can see them there on the map, right? They're at the top of the Sea of Galilee. If the miracles had been performed in you. Let me just... That's a fascinating phrase. We Sydney evangelicals would prefer that what Matthew said was, if the gospel was preached as clearly as Jesus can preach it in Tyre and Sidon, everyone would have believed. But it doesn't say that. Instead, it says, if the miracles that were performed, there is something evidential about the miracles that prove that Jesus is the Messiah, that the King 
has come and the kingdom is breaking in. John the Baptist says, Jesus, are you the one or should we wait for another? And Jesus says, look at the evidence and the evidence is miracles. I think sometimes in our tradition, we underplay the significance. And here we see Jesus twice, once to John the Baptist and now before he curses these cities, highlighting the fact that miracles are evidence of the fact that Jesus is the coming King, the Messiah. If the miracles have been performed in Tyre and Sidon, now that's up there on the coast, and it's Syrian or Phoenician country. It's where Gentiles live. If the Gentiles had seen the miracles that the Jews had seen, they would have believed. And then Jesus goes on and he says, what about you, Capernaum? Capernaum is where, like, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law and then that night the whole town comes and the next morning they come again and Jesus has got so many people that he's overloaded and he goes away and has some quiet time with God. A, 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 a multitude of miracles and how do they respond? Again, with disbelief. And Jesus says, if Sodom, that despicable place from the Old Testament from which we get the name sodomy, if, if that uh, ungodly city, it, it's kind of the, the picture, the, the pinnacle of ungodliness, if even they had seen the miracles, they would have responded with more faith. It's going to be more bearable for them on the day of judgment. It just doesn't make sense. Why would Israel not respond to an invitation like those of you who are weary, those of you who are burdened, and that's going to be most of them, come to me and I will give you rest. Well, I want to explore that and I want to offer four perspectives. We're going to look at this question from four different ways. Why is it that more Jews don't respond? Why is it that we, at a time when we are perhaps feeling burdened and heavy laden, when we need to take our next step of faith towards Jesus, why is it that we might make the same mistake as the first century Jews and respond to the timely uh, opportunity, the timely invitation that Jesus makes, coming to the person who can most offer the support and the hope uh, that we need? Why might we also miss out like the first century Jews do? Well, here's the first perspective. You could take that invitation of Jesus, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And you could take it out of its context and you could say, isn't that just a magnificent invitation? Uh, who could say no to that kind of an offer? It's just too good to be true. And what you could do is you could take that verse and you could stick it on a fridge magnet or you could stick it on your teacup and you could think to yourself, isn't Jesus amazing? Look what he's offering, right? Here's a guy who is gentle and humble and he's going to help us Find rest for our souls. Is your soul unsettled? Just have a look at your teacup and your fridge magnet. And Jesus is the person who's going to give you a sense of peace, uh, a sense of rest. He's going to lift those burdens from your shoulders. 
Is that what's going on in this passage? Well, I want to say, in part, that is true. Jesus actually is making those promises. He's not just saying those words. They're actually promises that we can trust. Jesus is gentle and humble, and he does um, do the heavy lifting of the yoke for us so that our burden will be light and easy, and he does uh, bring our souls into a place of rest if we would but follow him. That is true, but it's only half of the truth. Jesus has said some other things preceding this. So if we jump back to uh, Matthew 10, Jesus says, Don't suppose that I have come to bring peace to earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Families are going to be divided. A man against his father, a daughter against her mother. Family tension hurts, doesn't it? Like no other tension. It kind of runs deeper and it cuts to the bone in a way that, say, a workplace tension does not. And Jesus says, that's one of the consequences of following me. And then he also says, if anyone... Sorry, um, anyone who loves his mother or his father more than me is not worthy of me. So you're going to have to give up the things that you love, the things that kind of seem natural. You heard Janice talking about her grandchildren. Who wants to give up the kind of love that we have that, that just comes so intuitively and naturally? And Jesus says... Um, Anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's just far too simplistic to say Jesus came and his promises are peace and rest for your soul, and that's it. Following Jesus also involves taking up a cross or putting on a yoke. And that yoke is going to be less than the yoke that you would put on yourself if you tried to do it all in your own strength. So, yes, it is easier and it is lighter, and we'll come to that in a minute, but the promise, the invitation of Jesus is not one to avoid suffering. In fact, following Jesus invites a level of suffering. It just happens to be less suffering and certainly less meaningless suffering than living in your own strength or chasing after other things. That's the first perspective. What about the second one? Well, I'll call this a reformed perspective on this passage. And what those from a kind of a reformed perspective will want to do is they will want to notice what's going on in verse 25 and 26, where Jesus says, just before he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, and you've revealed them to little children. In other words, Jesus' revelation obscures things from some and highlights them 
for others. The wise and the learned, well, these things are somehow hidden from them. Whereas the little children, well, it's revealed to them. And then in verse 27, all these things have been committed to me by my father. No one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. What are we talking about here? We're talking about predestination. Jesus is saying, God, you've chosen not the wise and the learned, but the children. And then you've said to me, call those children. And so the ones that you say, I call and I introduce them to you. And it's only those who get to know you. It's pretty clear. I, I, I don't know what you happen to think about predestination. It's a, it's a difficult uh, doctrine to swallow, the fact that God chooses some and not others. But I think the evidence for it is undeniable. Here Jesus is saying that. He's saying, right, uh, God's chosen these and not these, and, and I'm calling these and not these. Uh, and we haven't yet gone to Romans 8 or Ephesians 1, where Paul reflects on the same themes. So is the reason that Israel doesn't respond to this beautiful invitation to rest because they haven't been chosen? Well, yes, that's true. But again, it's only half of what's going on here. You see, the fact that Jesus believes that some have been called and some haven't doesn't mean that he says to the disciples, you know what, just when you go on mission, those that have been called, they'll just find their way to you like a, a, a magnet. They'll be just drawn to you. So you don't need to go out and preach the gospel or you don't need to go out and invite the nations or disciple. No, Jesus doesn't say that to his disciples. Jesus goes around and invites and calls everyone to repent. And then at the end of Matthew's gospel, he sends out his disciples to evangelize all the nations. So somehow, despite the fact that Jesus appears to believe that God calls and God chooses, nonetheless, we have responsibility and we feel like we have the capacity to choose freely and so Jesus extends a winsome invitation as if people could respond. And people are responsible for how they choose to respond or at least how they feel they choose to respond. Beyond that, well, it gets a bit complex. But just to state kind of that hyper-reformed position that somehow some have been predestined and some haven't is to just say half and not the whole story. A third perspective. And this would be a perspective where most of the commentators would take us. Uh, and I happened to read Don Carson on that this week. And Don Carson focuses on the yoke. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And then Carson takes us to Matthew 23. And we read this, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. We saw that last week, right? That the teachers sit, Jesus sat when he preached. Um, and what do the teachers of the law and the Pharisees do? 
they tie up heavy burdens, cumbersome loads, and put them on other people's shoulders. In other words, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees make up these extra laws. And they say, not only should you obey the law, the law of Moses, but we're going to put some boundary laws around that so that if you don't break these laws, you won't even get close to breaking those laws. Um, laws about the Sabbath or laws about food or laws about cleaning or tithing or whatever. Um, and Jesus is saying, that's a cumbersome load. The, the thought that somehow you could save yourself by good works, by obeying the law, that is a burden. To have that burden on yourself, that burden of guilt, that burden of having to whip yourself into shape, of beating yourself so that you don't, of restraining and holding yourself in check, that's just a burden that we can't possibly cope with. And so what Jesus is saying here is, you're not going to be saved by following the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and thinking that somehow you can obey the law and you can earn your salvation. Instead, take my burden upon you because it's easy and light. Well, I want to say again, there's an awful lot of helpful truth there. I think the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are prone to legalism and a legalistic use of the Old Testament law. And you can't save yourself that way. And Paul talks about that. And there is something about human nature where we'd like to think that somehow we can contribute to our salvation. But it's not the case. Uh, we, we overestimate our capacity when we think in those terms. And uh, Jesus is in part saying, that's not how it works. That's a burden. And, and that burden is just going to bury you if you take that upon yourself. However, I want to push back a little bit on this. And let me make a few points. Firstly, in regards to Matthew 23. The picture of the Pharisees here is not that they make all these extra laws and their biggest sin is the fact that they are legalists or legalistic. Their biggest sin, according to Jesus in Matthew 23, is that they're hypocrites. They actually make laws for other people and then don't obey all of them themselves. They burden other people and then don't lift a finger to help them. So it's perhaps as much about being in control as it is about being legalists. And I think another thing that's kind of going on in this passage is that uh, if Jesus wanted to say, you know what, you're not saved by works, but you're saved by grace, if, if that was the point of this conversation, I'm not sure Jesus would say, take my yoke upon you because it's easy and it's light. Let me just unpack that a little more. If the Pharisees are saying you can save yourself by works, 
the obvious thing for Jesus to say as a response would be to say, no, no, you can't save yourself by works. It's totally by grace that you're saved. You can't take any yoke upon yourself. I carry the entire yoke. But actually, what Jesus says is, you do have to take a yoke. It's not much of a yoke. It's going to be an easy yoke. It's going to be a light yoke. But take a yoke, you must. What does that mean? Is Jesus suggesting that somehow we have to contribute a little bit to saving ourselves? Well, of course he doesn't mean that. So I'm not so sure that this is solely about saving yourself by works. The context doesn't suggest that either. I I just don't read the New Testament as the first century Jews hearing Jesus preaching and being amazed by it and being wowed by his miracles and then most people saying, you know what, Jesus, you're a pretty amazing, cool guy, but actually... I would rather try and earn my salvation by good works and therefore I'm going to reject following you. That's kind of not how the the Gospels read, is it? And the response of the masses. Um, And what's going on in this passage is that Jesus says, you didn't receive John the Baptist as a prophet like Elijah. You're not receiving me as a prophet. What's the message of the prophet? It's about faith. It's about trusting Jesus for your salvation rather than Israel trusting themselves or their capacity to obey the law or their capacity to make deals with the nations or to kind of trust in themselves. Um, So let me take you to another passage. I think this passage uh, gets us to the essence of what's going on. Uh, I'm in Matthew 15. Leaving that place... Galilee, the region of Galilee, uh, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. That's a neat fit, isn't it? Because Jesus has just said if the miracles that were performed here were performed in Tyre and Sidon, and now surprise, surprise, a couple of chapters later, same stage of Jesus' ministry, it's right at the end of this kind of year of popularity, um, Jesus finds himself in Tyre and Sidon. With who? A Canaanite woman, not a Jew. Remember, Matthew's gospel is about, is Jesus the Jewish Messiah that the Jews are waiting for? And now Jesus is with a Canaanite woman and she comes to him and says, hey, my daughter's uh, suffering terribly from demon possession. We know Jesus can cast out demons. Surely Jesus, the son of God, the source of pure light, wants to cast out any demonic oppression any time he could right apparently not this woman comes and hassles Jesus and Jesus kind of ignores her Jesus doesn't answer a word so the disciples come to him and urge him send her away she's getting annoying and what does Jesus say he says I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel what a strange phrase And it's exactly what Jesus tells his disciples before he sends them out on mission. Only go to Israel. The woman came and knelt before him and said, Lord, help me. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. This is non-PC. You cannot say this type of stuff, Jesus. And what's the woman's response? Don't call us dogs. No. 
She says, yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Do you get the contrast? Jesus is running around Galilee and he is lavish with his miracles. He is positive and hopeful with his teaching. And how do people respond? With disbelief. And now Jesus is in Tyre and Sidon. There's a Canaanite woman. He's not showing any miracles. He's um, refraining from teaching her. He's calling her, in essence, a second-class citizen. And her response is, hey, I am, but even the crumbs would suit me just fine very much. Thank you very much. And Jesus says, woman, you have great faith. That, I think, is the essence of what's going on when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come and take my yoke. Come and put your faith in me. Come and trust me. Come and attach yourself to me. And what does a yoke do? A yoke is something that was placed on a beast of burden so that they could go out and work. And Jesus is saying, life is a struggle. It's wearisome. It's burdensome. It will leave you tired. And the question is, which yoke are you going to take? Choose your poison. Choose your yoke. Because all of life is going to present you some difficulties. You can try tackle it by yourself or you could try, trust me, attach yourself to me. And Jesus will do the heavy lifting. And so for us, the burden will be light and will be easy. That's a kind of a, an agricultural metaphor. Or if I could switch to a dancing metaphor, Jesus is kind of saying, hey, uh, choose me as your dance partner and, and I will take the lead. I will guide you safely around the floor and you just step where I step and move where I move and it will be easy and it will be light for you and you will find rest. And now all the other pieces of the puzzle fit into place. Now that sense of prosperity, it is an easier and a lighter and a more blessed path in life than any path we choose for ourselves. And it's easier and lighter than trying to save ourselves by good works. And yet there's something about human nature that when asked to trust somebody else, the inclination of our heart is, actually, I'd rather trust myself. And so a people who trusting themselves has led to 700, 600 years of slavery, they're under oppression 
They're highly taxed. Many of them are enslaved and living on the poverty line. Jesus comes, brings new covenant blessing, and their answer is, actually, this is too hard. We'd rather trust ourselves. So friends, the Jews were in a season of great need, of feeling weary and burdened. And it wasn't just individually, it's a corporate burden. And I think it's pretty unique because we actually happen to have that in our culture and our church just at the moment. There is this corporate sense of life is hard. I, I, I just can't be certain about things. I'd love to book a holiday, but who knows when I'm going to be able to travel? And who knows what I'm going to have to do when I come back? You know, I'd love to be able to um, use some of those savings and, and build a deck out the back, but man, I just cannot get timber or, you know, the supply lines in the world at the moment and transport and, and shipping. It's, there is so much kind of uncertainty. We meet people and we feel so drained so much more quickly. This corporate sense of life is hard, we're weary, we're burdened. Why might we miss coming to Jesus? Because we'd rather trust ourselves than trust him. And let me say that if you make that choice, you are putting a yoke on yourself. A yoke that will be heavy and burdensome. By contrast, Jesus is saying, attach yourself to me. So, how are you going to find the energy to come out of lockdown? Where can you take your next step out of uncertainty? And the answer is not, well, it's not I can take my next step out of uncertainty when certainty comes. Because if we've learned anything over the last year or two, it's that we're not in control. Certainty is elusive. It changes in a moment. And it could change again. Your next step my next step, our next step is best taken yoked to Jesus. He does the heavy lifting. He does the leading. We step where he steps. And that is the safest, most restful place for us to be. Let me pray for us. Oh, Jesus, you, you came to earth, you cried at the death of your friend, you lived in a family like we did, you wept over Jerusalem, you got hungry, you were tempted, you understand the human condition, you understand the experiences that we're going through and you 
are offering to us this morning that in your strength, you will walk beside us and you will do the heavy lifting and you will carry most of the burden and our experience will be light and easy. Yes, there's still a yoke for us, but it's so much better than any other yoke we could imagine or create for ourselves. Yes, there will be some invitation to some suffering, but let's not imagine that somehow we could come up with something better. We're fooling ourselves when we think like that. It didn't work for the Jews. It hasn't worked for us in the past. And it's not going to work for us coming out of lockdown. So this morning, Jesus, we want to say, we're in this with you. We're attached to you. Wherever you're going, Jesus, we're trusting in you. Not ourselves, not certainty, not a belief that somehow we're in control. Jesus, we trust you and we're following you. Thank you that you're trustworthy.